You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith and this is the Comedian's Comedian podcast, the show that gets inside the heads of all your favourite comedians and discovers their creativity, their process, their development, and in this case, uh, how they left comedy and had a wonderful final gig, completed comedy, got the hell out of Dodge and then created an incredible, uh, successful career for themselves as a writer. Because today I'm very pleased to have on the show Queeve McDonnell. Queeve to you or I, that's C-A-I-M-H, Queeve, it's as it's spelled. Um, but these days, more recently, C.K. McDonnell, uh, and we might learn the reasons behind that name change later on. We are going to talk about Queeve's incredible uh, writing career. He's the author of the Dublin Trilogy, and I think 10 books in total, all of which have been optioned for one thing or another. But the um, the Dublin Trilogy has sold over half a million copies uh, and is currently, I think it's just been optioned by uh, Avalon. Just been, uh, I think they signed some. We'll talk about this. I don't know the ins and outs of whether you whether it's an option or a development deal or something but it's got chris addison attached friend of the pod and fabulous man and i'm uh, very much looking forward to seeing it because in the research for this i have started to fall as in love with his characters as everyone seems to so we're going to talk about how to write fast we're going to talk about how his comedy career uh, calibrated him for tough criticism we're going to talk about solving problems in the shower and we're going to talk a little bit about letting his characters evolve uh, particularly bunny mcgarry who went from being a, a one-off villain to Queeves, uh, arguably his best love creation. There are 25 minutes of extra content available from this interview if you're a member of the Insiders Club, which you can uh, now join by going to comedianscomedian.com slash insiders or just go to comedianscomedian.com. There's enough pointy things on there and links. That's what they call, you know, pointy things. Um, and you can sign up for as little as £2 a month. It's very easy. You fill in the thing and you get sent a link that uh, gives you access to a private podcast with the extras from this episode on uh, Queeves secrets of self-publication and uh, we learn a bit about how he cultivates the fan base that uh, now bubble and flock around him and uh, write brilliant reviews and things like that and we find out why he won't record his own audiobooks also you will get access if you're in the insiders club to all of the exclusive insiders q a audio we've had zooms uh, like kind of intimate private zooms with nish kumar james acaster fern brady alfie brown and of course the incredible self-help for comedian special with psychologist amanda donnett look at that i've really front-loaded the this with stuff but go for it if you are new to the show and you're enjoying it there's a back catalogue there with over 375 episodes available to everybody unless you're on apple podcast in which case i believe the first hundred have dropped off but you can just find them somewhere else and if you are hardcore into it join up the inside join up the insiders club there we go merch idea join up the insiders club today 
Here's Queeve. You're a former stand-up comedian. Yeah, you no, prepa- I, you, is that it? Is it all over and done? Yeah, I genuinely made the decision to retire, which I know a lot of people don't, and sort of, um, you know, kind of, kind of always sort. Of, but I sort of made the decision um, that I wanted to because I didn't like being half in and half out. Like, because even between you and me, like, even with like Gary's tours, Gary, Gary was going, look, you can just come and tour with me and just MC the first bit. Like we were like because you were, I was always kind of doing half of that anyway. And he said, you know, we always have great fun together and stuff. Said, yeah, and I really like doing that, but I just don't want to be the blokes hanging around. I don't, I don't want, I, I hate the idea of somebody seeing me and going, oh, he's doing that story again. Um, and yeah, the reality right. was my focus was just so much elsewhere. Um, I didn't want to be hanging around and I don't like, I, I, I found myself getting nervous because I was doing, because I had so much time on the books that I wasn't focused on doing gigs. And then I found myself turning up going, trying to remember what the fuck I was doing. And I yeah. didn't, I didn't want someone to see a lesser version. Like you know, I didn't want to get to a certain level and then just gradually decline, and you know, still hanging around supporting my mates on tour because I'd rather just you know call it. And I got to finish at the stand in Glasgow, which is, uh, you know, I got to pick that, which was lovely. That's lovely. That is lovely to go towards your final stand-up gig. Because the thing I always say on the show is that people don't quit stand-up, they complete it. <laughs> and as someone, you know, someone I've had very few people on the show who have ever kind of completed and are looking back at a career in stand-up. But how wonderful. It's like being able to choose the time of your death, isn't it? Yeah. You, kind of, <laughs> you, go, you go towards a fight. Just talk to me for a sec about, we we will talk about your illustrious uh, career as a novelist. Oh, yeah, that's what But, um... Talk to me about what it felt like to be in the wings about to walk on stage for what you knew would be your last stand-up gig. Well, it was genuinely, it was honestly quite surreal. Um, and it was, the, the, the sort of odd thing was, and I, I actually, at, at the time, Sarah won't mind me saying this here, because, but like, I was supporting Gary Delaney. Um, and I remember leaving Gary's house. He went to do Edinburgh and Glasgow stand. And me, me and Gary go back years, as you know. So we were, it was kind of lovely to finish off supporting me best mate on tour. But Sarah was joking with us. I think she genuinely just sort of went, uh, are you worried about dying in your last gig? And I was like, well, I wasn't until you said that. <laughs> and, yeah, but it was, and it was genuinely, it was funny. And then, you know, look, you'd really struggle. To, if you're dying in the stand in Glasgow, you should have retired a long time ago. <laughs> um, so, yeah, no, I was kind of like Edinburgh was great. And then Glasgow was great. It was weird in a kind of, there was that thought that it was like, oh, wow, this is like the last. I know on stage I had that thought going, you're never going to say that story again. Um, and that was kind of weird. And what was really odd about it, thankfully the gig went well. It was in a heat wave in Glasgow, which is always a great way to remember it. And the, the sort of odd thing was, oh, by the way, it was almost exactly two years ago today as we record that I retired. Um, wow. Yeah, yeah. But the, the sort of odd thing was I sort of said at the end, I said, listen, thanks very much. You've been absolutely brilliant. And I know comics say that all the time but you genuinely have and it was kind of important because this is my last memory of doing stand-up because i'm retiring from today and i think they they thought it was a bit of course they thought it was a bit yes of course yeah yeah yeah. but but um then gary came on bless him and uh him and sarah without my knowing had got me a trophy funny you say that which said from gary and sarah well done in completing stand-up um, oh. And he presented it to me, and it was a really weird moment because Gary went. I think most of them only kind of went. If this is a bit, it's very involved now because he's got a, he's got a trophy made, and Gary's coming out to do a bit. This seems like it's a very like there must be a massive payoff coming. Um, but yeah, so yeah, it was it was very odd, kind of quite surreal, but genuinely it was a happy thing, and it was lovely because 
look, I've seen really good mates of mine go on and be, you know, Gary and Sarah, I kind of, you know, I know really, really well. And there's other comics going on and, and people have done great stuff. And it's genuinely been really cool to see that happen and to be even on tour support to sort of see the venues get bigger and stuff was especially with Gary and stuff was really cool because we started together like we were um, because I, I could drive and he couldn't. So we were basically teamed up early doors. I met him on my sixth gig when I was about to give up and we bonded over this is that long that we bonded over uh, losing a competition in the Laughing Horse in Richmond. Uh, okay. And we bonded over pointing out where the guy who'd won, where the gags were stolen from. Um, <laughs> and then it's just like, oh, no. oh, but I mean, genuinely, I think you've said this thing, but I've retired, so I'm happy to slam everybody. <laughs> I mean, literally throw out some names. I'll give you some very honest opinions. Um, <laughs> um, so, sorry, we were saying that uh, you bonded with Gary. And I remember one of the, because you guys, you lived in Leamington. I'm from Leamington. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I, I particularly that stuck in my mind at the time that you and Gary lived together. And the other thing I know about when you mentioned driving is that uh, I remember Gary was always the person who would recommend which comic to which which car comics should get mm. because he has the sort of brain that does research and looks at spreadsheets and does graphs and goes you want a Skoda a Skoda Octavia yeah. and you you don't want one but that's the car you want yeah, yeah. so were you driving Gary's Skoda Octavia yeah yeah no well we we both had Skoda Octavias for a while I genuinely uh, bizarrely coming out with quite close to where they live uh, I had uh, three escaped horses run into my Skoda Octavia um, total it um, but I amazingly because horses are big animals and these things just ran in like literally total the car um, and I got out of the Skoda Octavia it was like really it was the oddest thing because they ran off into the night and I was like standing there on the road with a total car and then someone drove up and went are you alright I was like but there was horses horses were here <laughs> they've gone now but there were horses um, and I was because I was quite in shock. Um, and genuinely, I went out the next day and bought another Skoda Octavia because they're very fuel efficient. And it turns out they'll also save your life. So uh, yeah, horse proof. I wonder if that. Was I would say proof. Uh, oh, but genuinely, <laughs> the funniest stand-up thing because I did um, in my last Edinburgh show, I had a thing with a two-point point glass because um, I was doing a free fringe, and I got this two-point point glass in a gig I was at once, and I did a whole bit with it at the gig, and it became part of the show. Um, and because it was part of the show, I had to go to great lengths to get like backups because, you know, yourself in Edinburgh, you can't have one of everything. You have to have several in case something dies. So I had like four or five two point point glasses in my boot. And when the horses hit me, the whole car went forward and like the contents of my boot came into the car. And I literally the police were coming in and I looked into the car and went. I'm I'm just going to move all the point glasses because it doesn't set a good tone for women explaining how I don't drink. And yeah, it was just such a weird like, explaining why you'd have those because I'm a stand-up comedian. That's the kind same way as Gary has balaclavas. He has to explain why where they are. Oh, for sure. And that's a great bit. But let's yeah. not go into it now. Yeah. So, so talk to me a little bit about how important your identity as a stand-up was to you then. Because that's like, I think stand up is, it really seems vocational for yeah. a lot of people. And I think when you are a stand up, partly maybe as a reaction to just how difficult it can be, and partly because it constantly feels heroic. And, you know, if, if you pull it off, you're a hero. And if you die trying, you're a hero. Mm. So just talk to me about the, what that meant to you and what it felt like to, to give that up, to let go of it. It was weird because I did I did always sort of see myself as a stand up, but even when I was I did like TV writing and stuff like that, I always genuinely referred to myself as a stand up comedian. Um, 
and it is it's it's kind of a core like even now people ask me all the time about missing it and stuff and it's like I do and I don't I miss I think I really miss the sort of camaraderie of it and and meeting the people and stuff because I mean you must have noticed this yourself through lockdown that the adrenaline and then the come down and the up and the down someone should do some research on this because it's it's an amazing thing because when I gave up genuinely for the first three or four months I had to learn how to sleep like a human being does because like you can't have all these big adrenaline and stuff like that but to go back to your question yeah it was it was part of my thing but I guess I just saw it as that's a wonderful part of my life I really enjoyed um but I think by then because the writing was going well and I I I feel honestly more comfortable as a writer. Um, so I guess it was like, oh, I'm sort of proud of the stand-up. I really enjoyed it. But I was like, okay. And I just like, I kind of like the idea that I get to go, I got to go, uh, I'm giving this up. Like, I, you know, I was lucky I'd had a good career and it was like, but now I'm going to I'm gonna call an end to it. Thanks very much. I've had a brilliant time. And not just sort of fade off into the distance, which is kind of what happens with people. So it was a big part of my identity and I, I think, um, and a you know, massive part of my life. But uh, I think I'm, you know, I'm pretty okay with it because everyone keeps expecting me. Several people have said, like, you're going yeah, to come back and when it's, you know, like, you're going to say, no, I, I, I mean, I, I, I still love stand up uh, and I still mad keen to see some. I'd love to go to Edinburgh. You know, I want to see some Edinburgh shows and just dive back into that. But I think I'm okay not being the guy on stage, I think. I'm just doing some maths in my head. You said two years ago was your last one, which is yeah. just obviously pretty, not just before we went into lockdown, but like that's a little bit like trying to quit smoking and you're ill for a month. So you don't smoke yeah. and you're like, great. What a great way to start. What a great jumping off point to continue not doing this. It's literally, as Gary said, it may have been the greatest piece of comedic timing I've ever managed was I retired just before everything. <laughs> it's like genuinely was like, wow. I mean, that is... And it was pretty much, yeah. I mean, it's it's a weird thing then that that um, you know, see, stand ups kind of obviously struggling with the idea. I have spoke to a couple of stand ups about weirdly because they went from gigging a lot to not gigging, and I spoke to a few people about it is weird, and you probably should maybe try and get yourself into a good sleep thing. Like, don't do the thing when you're up till five in the morning because when you're doing stand up, that's fine. When you're not doing stand up, that's gonna make you crazy. Like, you need to be on a proper. Because it does have an effect. All that adrenaline generally has an effect on your body. And you sort of notice it when you take it out of your system. That it's an adjustment, which is, um, you kind of get used to it. But like, for ne- like now, I sleep like a human being. My wife finds it really odd that I go to bed before she does. Because normally it'd be, like literally, my wife had a rule when, we, when I was a stand-up gigging a lot. She had a rule, please come to bed before 5am. Because if you come to bed after 5am... If you wake me up, I might not get back to sleep again before I have to get up like a human being. Sure. Uh, but yeah, weird. So let's talk about when you first started writing. Presumably you were a stand-up at the time and you had responsibilities to be writing material and turning over material and then simultaneously started on what then was a side project. Did you know it was your your way out, an escape route from stand-up, or was it something you were just sort of noodling with? It was never an escape route and stuff, but I think what was, was, to be honest, it was more an escape route from writing for TV, if I'm honest. I mean, I didn't see, see it in those terms, but certainly in hindsight, because basically, to give some context, I'd written a lot of TV. I'd written on sort of TV, mainstream TV shows. Like I worked on Sarah Millican's show, and I, I worked with people um, as comics on... Um, uh, mock the week and stuff like that. I did a lot of stuff in the background, working with a lot of people like that. Um, so yeah, I've kind of I kind of done all that stuff, and I also did an awful lot of kids' TV writing, like a huge amount of it um, for what, quite a long what, what time. Kids, 
what kids shows? Were oh, I've, they're not around for much, but there there was a, a thing called Bear Behaving Badly, which was for a few okay. years there was was um, yeah, I was like the lead writer on that. I was a bear that has I think ninety three phrases he can say, and like I was doing and because like, I got into kids TV writing a tired of accent, but I did Bear Behaving Badly all with the same company most of it. I did a thing called Pet Squad, which is a cartoon series that I actually was my idea. That mm-hmm. um, it was actually did really well for the BBC, but the Canadian company I think are now gone gone sideways who owned half the rights so um because literally a cartoon series is the hardest thing to get made in any form of tv you have to get five countries involved like literally wars are literally easier to start than a cartoon series is um but yeah because of the because of the commitment to time and money yeah and just everybody and the way funding works is you have to get like thailand and and all these people involved and there's all kinds of weird stuff goes on um it's generally like the producers like it's it's the wild west to get the cartoon series made you have to make all these very odd deals but yeah so i was doing that and i was like so i wrote a load of that stuff which was actually great education that was kind of how i learned to be a writer because there's no other medium in TV where you have to write 20 episodes or something. And I was, because I was the main writer. I was writing a lot. Um, so, yeah, I was doing all of that. And then it's sort of, I was already got nominated for the BAFTA and stuff for, it was for Pet Squad. Yeah, it was Pet Squad. And um, then weirdly, um, I think because, I'm not saying it was difficult to work with. I had the problem. This is a weirdly unique problem. I got to work with the best company in kids tv from the start like they found me they've read my adult script and brought me in and i worked with them then i, I started getting offered stuff with other people started working with them and went oh you people are really disorganized and terrible like, <laughs> and in hindsight i probably should have been a bit more diplomatic because i was going why are you doing it this way this isn't how you should do it because when you've worked with people who are the best at it it's really hard to just put up with other people not knowing what they're doing um, can you can you give me an example of the sort of thing you mean, like the the kind of the deafness or the organisation? Oh, or... genuinely, for for a year there, when Bear Behaving Badly and Pet Squad were in um, were in production, Maddie, the producer, who's brilliant, she sort of ran me up and said, "Right, I know this is going to be an odd conversation, but uh, when would you like to go on holiday next year? Because I'm just logging in exactly when your things will come and stuff, and we just want to know, like put put in because they literally had everything timed out. It was like." All that sort of stuff. And to be honest, near the end, I had a weird thing where I had to fix someone else's script. Um, one of the one of the broadcasters asked them to use a writer because it was somebody's, look, it was Oxbridge or something. It was somebody giving somebody a, a leg up. The guy came in, wrote an absolute stinker. Um, they sent it to me. I went, this is terrible. Um, and then I the thing, they said, could you fix this? And eventually um, what I did was just write one with the same title because by the time I fixed all this, it's just easier <laughs> to just let me do one. Um, but they had a weird thing because they were in a real rush. I sort of went... Um, they kind of went, how long will it take you? And I said, I'll let you know when it's done. And I said, and they were like, oh, just let us know. And then I came the next day and said, it's done. And he said, the whole script's done. And I said, to be honest, because I didn't want to tell you this because it sounds like I'm not doing it properly. But the 23-minute script, near the end, I could block myself in a room at 8 o'clock in the morning and come out at the end of the day and have written an entire episode. Because um, okay. I'm, a, I'm a fast writer and I just go. When I'm locked in with no internet, I just go. And I was actually holding on to them for a week, even when I did that, because I didn't want people to think I hadn't taken it seriously, like that I'd yes. done it too quickly. And they were like, after that, they went from now on, I went, look, if we, if you did a bad script, we'd tell you, just send us the script because we we're in a hurry. I was like, okay. Um, so to, to, let's stay with that for a sec. So, yeah. why, so you're a fast writer. What is it that, if I ask what is it that makes you a fast writer, obviously the easy answer is writing fast. But but given that like presumably you've you became 
faster? Like, what is it a case of? Are there kind of mental shortcuts that you're doing? Are there what what things are there? Like, if you were trying to t- say to someone, if you were trying to train someone up to write that kind of show as fast as you could, mm. what would be the kind of the efficiency, the creative efficiency, kind of? I think manifesto. generally with those kind of shows, what you have to do is you have to tell them beforehand what's in the episode, so you sort of lay it out. And that was I can remember finding that really arduous at the start. Um, and they actually pulled me aside and said, look, you have to put more detail and explain more what's happening. And I was like, oh, OK. And then you kind of get used to doing that. And then when you have that, you basically have the roadmap and you break it down. Like you're um, storyboarding the episode. Yeah, you're basically storyboarding the episode out and you've got the beats and stuff. And basically when you do beats and all these things, which you can do in novels and stuff like where we're sitting now that you can't see there's a there's a thing behind me on the wall. And um, that's basically a cork board where I stick up uh, cards for every chapter in a book I write using the same mm-hmm. thing. And I don't have to know the whole thing before I start, especially not in a book, but I just need certain tent poles along the way. I need to know the first few chapters. I need to know roughly where we're going, Um, especially now. Like I said, I've written about a dozen books now, so it's sort of a lot easier. But yeah, you you do sort of plan it out beforehand. And then I think it's just the way my mind works where um, I get excited about an idea and I just sort of go. And I don't, I've I've said this before and I've always feel bad saying it because you know those things where you see writers talking about how hard it is to write. And how it's and look, I'm sure it is for a lot of people. Maybe it's how how I write. I actually have to be enjoying myself, I think, to write. I, I see it as play. Like before we recorded this today, I was sitting down dictating a chapter. I now dictate everything, by the way. We can explain that in a minute if you want. But, oh yeah, yeah. Um I um I see it as play. I'm enjoying myself. And I think it helps. Like genuinely, if you see it in, in that way, I, I enjoy writing. I find it quite easy because I don't, you know, I mean, obviously there are hard parts of it and you do have to sit there and try and think things out and stuff. But I took the attitude quite early on that I see it as play and that I'm enjoying myself. And I honestly think in my writing, the enjoyment comes across, um, which I think really helps. And I think that's the thing is if you can get yourself in the mental frame of mind where you're enjoying yourself and you're doing it for yourself. And even things like Kids TV, every writing thing is basically puzzle solving. Even most stand up and stuff, when you're trying to figure out, because, you know, as you know yourself, there's always those weird little leaps of this going to this and how would you put these two things together? And it's always a weird little kind of puzzle solving. That's how I've always seen it in my head. And I've always just enjoyed that. So it doesn't matter if it's putting captions on a picture on Mock the Week or figuring out how a blue bear is going to have a bath that takes 23 minutes to go hilariously wrong (laughs) and involves a submarine and a skeleton. It's the same principle that you can, you know, it's just solving problems. Okay. Okay. So with that in mind, I think there'll be stand-ups listening to this going, oh, right, he's written stand-up and he's written for comedy shows and it made him like a really fast writer and plotter of things. I mean, a lot of people listening to this will be going, oh, how can I get some of that sweet novelist, uh, <laughs> that uh, that sweet novelist shed money? You should have had me on the start of the pandemic. <laughs> I have had that conversation quite a lot. <laughs> really okay i want you had lots of comics ringing you up going help me yeah. i need a career as a novelist yeah okay and and what what help could you offer them could you offer them any help or is it a case of saying oh sure well the secret is five years hard graft um i think the you know i think it's a lot of there's a lot of different things there's a lot of misconceptions people have about it um i think definitely just being able to plan it out sort of thing there's also that thing about you just have to keep going the biggest people problem people make with um, writing is honestly, they just sort of stop and, oh, this isn't really working and stuff like that. Everybody thinks their stuff is crap at a certain point. And you have to get through that. There's an amazing thing with Ian Rankin, the incredible Scottish crime writer. 
and there's an amazing, I can't remember what it was, was it a video or something, but basically he was being interviewed and um, he was talking about the process and how he basically hits the wall and he went to talk about going into his wife on the last book and going, oh, it's just, it's just not working. It's, it's just, it's, I'm going to have to scrap it. It's not. And she was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. How many words are you in? He said, oh, I'm about 60, 65,000. But yeah, yeah, that, that's about right. So what do you mean? Well, we have this conversation every time, love. You forget every time. <laughs> well, you, you always have this. You think it's thing. And, you know, and, and so how do I get by it? You, you just start writing again. Like you, you literally just yeah. go in because the whole, the, genuinely the biggest, the simplest thing in the world with every script, everything. Actually, if I'd have known this about stand up when I'd started, because I think I would have been, I think I blew it with stand up in a way. I could have been a lot better. Um, honestly, if I'd, if I'd, um, kind of got over myself, got over my own self doubt. Uh, and actually just kept producing new work because I think a lot of stand-ups could fall into that thing where this works I'm hanging on to this this you know and you just hang on to this thing like it's a bloody life raft and you're scared to move off material and stuff and then near the end in my stand-up career I actually got much better at learning how to do new material and I started doing more hour-long shows like I did the free fringe two years in a row um, and I weirdly my last genuinely my last free fringe show um, I was really pleased with, and then like a few different comics have actually said, he came along said, um, you know that was really great. I mean, it sounds I don't really like saying this because it sounds, but a couple of the people we both know said yeah. that they they reckoned it was one of the top two shows they'd seen in um, Edinburgh that year. Actually, four comics said that to me, which is really nice because like three of them weren't even related to each other. So it, yeah. it was point. It was, it was a really good show, but I think by that point, um, I kind of. You know that people at a certain point you are what people think you are, um, and it was look. I'm not blaming him for that. I think it was because if I'd known better at the start um, about how to push myself forward. But the great thing about that is, I learned from that, and in writing, I actually figured out what I needed to do much earlier because I'd been through all the crap. And the great thing about where I am now is all the stuff you thought were wasted opportunities and stuff you got wrong. Turns out, honestly, all of that ended up being brilliant because it got me to where I am now. And I'm not saying that cliched way. Honestly, it really does. Feels like it made sense. That's nowhere near what the question was, is it? But <laughs> no, no. But that's great. That's a fantastic answer. Can you can you give me an example of something of a specific that you feel? Because I'm fascinated with that idea of feeling like you've blown it for stand up, but now you get kind of cash back on mistakes that you made or lessons that you learned. Can you give us a kind of a specific example of something? the the trip the stumbling upon which in stand up gave you an in as a writer um i think honestly in stand up i had you know i if i if i'd actually figured out what i was good at because what i was actually good at was telling stories ironically enough which is bear in mind where it sure. makes perfect sense now doesn't it but like i i would sort of i was good at doing stories and i had to find a way i was really in clubs and stuff, I was always a bit nervous uh, about doing longer stories because you know yourself, you've got to, oh God, if they're not paying attention, if I start this, if they aren't paying attention, it's five minutes long and this will go badly. And I had a couple of big stories that involved racism and stuff just because things happen because my wife is black. Um, and spoiler alert, I'm tremendously white for anyone listening, but I just haven't seen a picture. <laughs> I mean, like, I'm unnecessarily white. I'm like, I'm like a poster boy for the fucking, no, because I'm, I'm very white. And we, we've had like literally funny things have happened along those things. They ended up being big stories. They ended up being a part of a, of a show. But you always had that. I was terrified of, of, oh God, these people will lose these people. 
in hindsight, I'd wish I'd cared a lot less what certain, what, what people thought. And I maybe stuck to my guns more because I would, I think in stand up, you can have the, I want these people to like me. And I, whereas reality, when I'm writing, I'm going, I'm just doing this for myself. And if someone doesn't like it, that's fine. And the glorious thing about being a novelist and like this other novelist, when you're meeting with conventions going, Oh, bad review will just slay me for a week. And I'm like, unless somebody's tried to knock you out in a pub car park. <laughs> You've not lived about bad reviews, mate. Somebody literally being un- being afraid to leave a cubicle because two blokes are outside talking about how they love to kick the shit out of the Irishman. That's the thing that you do. Nothing can, anyone can do to me as a novelist is going to bother me for more than twenty minutes. <laughs> that is that is really interesting. So one of the one of the lessons to take forward is that you are you were calibrated for some tough criticism, yeah, or some threat, some threatening criticism, effectively. Yeah, I just genuinely didn't, and I got. I think I, I just going through all the stuff and going through TV writing actually, particularly because TV writing can be heartbreaking. Where I had stuff in development, I had about ten scripts optioned at different points. Um, and they're all in development and stuff. And then after two years, two people read it, one at Channel 4 and one at BBC, if they did read it, and it comes back and they go, yeah, we're not interested. You're like, that's so much time wasted. Whereas the great thing about being a novelist is I sit down every day and I'm like, whatever I'm writing, if I want to, I can put, I mean, they literally can't stop me. Uh, (laughs) That's weird. God, sorry, God. No, even like I'm traditionally published now, I was like, God, even if they somehow legally take my deal away or something, I can still put like, they literally can't stop me doing it. Not that they are, they're lovely people. But um, yeah, which is, it does help because I think um, stand-up is great in that you do get the feedback and you do get more of that. Honestly, being a TV writer can be soul-destroying when you're doing like option for, for, for scripts and stuff like that. Mm. When the stuff's not getting made, and I was like for a while there, I was I was kind of like a flavor of the month, which I think happens a lot where I ended up getting loads of things optioned. I literally got at one point I was in a meeting. I told somebody in the meeting because the other stuff they wanted was optioned by somebody else. And we were talking about having shit jobs. And I talked about working on ferries when I was in college and started telling them funny stories. Somebody optioned the conversation. Um, like <laughs> they, they paid me to write a, a, a pitch up based on people working on a ferry. Uh, you know, and then I went from that to spending two years on something and nobody paying any attention. But again, that yeah. was kind of frustration and stuff. But it, when you kind of got to the novel point, like now, you know, stuff's been optioned for TV and all. And the great thing now, and it is, I'm very pleased, don't get me wrong. But the great things now, um, like as we record this, the thing about the, the Dublin trilogy being optioned was was mentioned, was yeah. on the press last week. And I had somebody ring me up that morning, one of our mates of ours, and going, oh, it's fantastic news. You must be delighted. I said, I said oh, yeah, it's going on. It's going all right, yeah. He's going all right. I mean, it's uh, he's doing well. He's had a bit of a chew, and he's like, "What are you, what are you talking? What, what are you talking about?" He said, "Oh, I thought you were talking about the new dog." Is it? No, I was talking about your TV option. All oh, right, has that been announced? No, we've got a new dog. That's all I was caring about. <laughs> Literally, that was the only thing I thought about last week. I didn't really care. It's like, oh yeah, well that's nice, and something might happen with it. But um, I've been around the block enough to, to to kind of understand that you don't get too excited about these things is the best way to be. So this is Queeve, a joy to talk to him. So lovely to speak to someone so happily out of comedy. Uh, he did uh, tease at the beginning, oh, he'll happily say anything about anyone. We didn't get into that. We're not gossip mongers, but there is cr- more But there is more cracking stuff coming up with Queeve. Uh, in the second half of this, we're going to find out, we're going to go a bit into detail on Bunny McGarry and find out 
um, the the one misstep that Cueve made in the writing of Bunny and uh, how and where that was dealt with. Uh, and we're going to find out uh, what makes uh, Cueve laugh. And we're going to find out some... Um, uh, some secrets of the actual the nuts and bolts of writing and scripting and plotting and character development and all that proper stuff. It's good, this. It's a good way in. I tell you what, it's a good way in for me as well to speak to someone who is no longer a comic but now does another thing. We've had a couple of magicians recently. We've had a Greg Jenner, whatever he is, and uh, we are going to... I don't know. I mean, we've got... you know what? I've got... I, I hate mentioning people before the episode is in the can, but I've got Jonathan Coulton coming up. He's not a comedian. He's a songwriter. As much as I love the title of this podcast, The Comedian's Comedian, sounds all archetypal and everything, I do occasionally wish I'd called it The Stuart Goldsmith Podcast because <laughs> there's, there's so many more people out there I'd be happy to talk to. But maybe we'll do more non-com pods uh, with people in future. So if you know of particularly... Let's go with creatives. If you go with... If you know any creative people or if you have any kind of instincts for creative people who you think I should uh, be speaking to, whether or not they're comedians, then get in touch and we'll see if we can add them to the increasingly tottering and towering archive. Hey, here's a thing. It's about to be summer. In fact, it is summer. I have comical sunburn in the shape of, which is in the shape of the the negative of where I managed to reach my hands to on my own back because this morning me and my wife took the kids to the beach in Wales because it's the first official day of the summer holidays. And with that, two important announcements. One, I'm going to have summer off and I'm going to get back to you with more podcasts in September. So this is the list, the last one uh, until September. Um, and also, you'll just have to make do somehow. Come on, there's bloody loads of episodes back out there. Go back and listen to Jeremy Hardy again, or Joe Brand, or Mark Steele, or someone. There's a really good thread at the moment. Someone new to the Comedians Comedian Podcast Facebook group said, sorry if this is a dumb question, but what's everyone's favourite episodes? And everyone posted, it's not dumb at all, everyone posted their favourite episodes. So there's a great list there of ones to revisit while we have a little break. The second thing, of course, is the Edinburgh Festival, and I'm going to do a little mini pod about that in just a second and you might already have heard it by the time you hear this but it's happening in some form i'm doing six shows up there at the monkey barrel uh, which is uh, in the center of town you can find it using any search engine or human that you ask with words and um uh, i'm going to be doing a show it's called cut and shut it's on sale now tickets are seven pounds i've got b- bastard loads of them to sell but they are already selling so uh that's the great thing about going up i mean wouldn't it be fun to go up and do a huge room once didn't yanni do that i think yanni did that and um, anyway the you can find out about how to get tickets for that go to at comcom pod i'll put the uh the link in my biog link in biog biog do people say biog or bio i don't know enough about the internet um so Get tickets for it. And there's loads of other people going up there as well. I'm in the week I'm there, which is from the 10th to the 16th. Jordan Brooks is on. Ahir Shah is there. Olga Koch is there. Uh, who else? I think Garrett Millerick is there. And the Pleasants have just announced a load of people as well. And I had a fascinating phone call with a dear friend of mine and the podcast guest about whether they should or shouldn't come up to Edinburgh. And in the end, they decided they probably wouldn't. And I thought, I'd better go off the phone and try and convince some more comics not to go up as well. So there's more punters there for me. That is the brand. So um, let's uh, let's get on with that. Get Googling. There are people up there. It's all being done in a responsible and COVID safe way. So if you're feeling up for it, I think there's going to be a lot of exciting stuff happening up there. I'm hosting 
and uh, and uh, what's it called? What's it? Um, uh, Best of the Fest at the Assembly Hall. I'm going to do one of them. I'm doing a just put a couple of comedy club for kids gigs. So if you're there on the 14th and 15th, I'm going to be opening comedy club for kids. If you've got any little ones with you, who knows what it's all going to be like? But it'll be like something, and I cannot wait. So monkeybarrelcomedy.com to find out more about the Monkey Barrel lineup, and broadly. I mean, I'm not currently on edfringe.com. I haven't registered there. I don't think many people are because you're doing small runs. It barely seems worth it. So um, remember that there are other places to find out what's going on. I would look at websites for the, the big venues. I think Gilded are doing something. Listen, tell you what, I'll do a mini podcast. I'll go into this in more detail. For now, let's get back. Remember Queeve? Remember we were talking to Queeve McDonald? CK McDonald to you. Uh, let's get back to that. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's big, exciting news. And I guess that you are looking for some of the reviews of the Dublin trilogy and the books therein. There's a lot of people going, oh, this would make a fantastic movie. This would make a great TV series. So let's assume it's happening without getting excited about it. What is what's your vision for it and what things would you be concerned about, given that part of your job now is to hand it over? I mean, maybe is that is your job done? Like you've written the source material, you don't get consulted anymore? Or no. is there a, what are you anticipating? What are you hoping for? Well, it's sort of, it's a kind of weird where, I mean, both The Stranger Times and the Dublin books have been optioned now. So kind of everything I've basically written has been optioned. Uh, but the Dublin trilogy is the one that's just been announced. That was, um, the great thing about that is it's Avalon, but it's actually basically Chris Addison. Um, this kind of came out of nowhere. I got contacted and I, I still actually never got to ask him, but somebody must have recommended my books to Chris Addison and Chris Addison has read them and he, and he was a fan of them. Um, and so I had a meeting with Chris Addison. Weirdly, um, it was kind of just at the March 2020 was basically before all the lockdowns and stuff. It was really odd. I remember we were having the meeting. It went great. And myself and Chris Addison we kind of met a couple of times before, but we knew a lot of the same people and we were chatting about stuff. And we had that we had a weird sort of last chopper out of Saigon feel to it. It really did. Like he's the last person sure. I shook hands with. And it's now June 2021. Um, but basically, uh, yeah. I was really excited because there's been a few different things before and they were sort of optioned by an American company before. Um, and then the, as happens in TV, the person who was in, who optioned them loved them and then left. Um, but I was really excited because I, Chris, you know yourself, stand-up comedians, like even though Chris doesn't do that much stand-up anymore because he's so busy doing everything else and I obviously retired, we have the same mentality. We speak the same language. So when I was talking to him about it, um, it just felt like, especially because I'm a fan of his work genuinely, that he gets it 
and we can speak the same language and we can talk about these things in the same way. And even like, to be honest, there's four books and there's like prequels. There's actually five now. And I've, I've had two prequels and stuff. I write in a very haphazard manner. Literally, my wife's in charge of this. When I explained to her that the book we just just launched, when I explained to her initially going, it's going to be a, a sequel to the prequel. And she just went, how am I supposed to explain that to people? <laughs> That's a nightmare. But yeah, but the, the great thing about it was Chris, basically, because I'd done TV and stuff, he said, um, I wanted to talk to you about it because um, the way the books are, I don't think you'd do the books literally. I said, no, you wouldn't. He said, oh, great. I said, yeah, because the way the, the, the story's structured... And I actually said, I think what we do is we take elements of the overall arc of the stories, but then we pull in all these other bits because I've written like five books just based in Dublin. There's some great scenes and stuff that we can pull in. And I'm literally fine with the idea of we take the opening chapter of this book because there's a really strong opening scene in one of the books and we can use that to introduce the characters. And then you can go into this. You can actually merge the worlds um, between a book 16 years ago and now. And yeah. I've already explained to my fan base, I've gone, if it does become to TV, by the way, it will be different. And I'm really happy with that because I don't want to just try and redo the same thing. I always find that quite boring in some ways if you're a fan of the material, just seeing. Because if someone does the book you love, word for word, line for line, it is never as good as it is in your head. Yeah, so I think sure. you should make something new. Um, it's like then when they did Watchmen, the you know, the, the um, Zack Snyder did Watchmen. And it's a good film, but it's not as good as the book, but because it's a, it's almost a scene by scene, like frame by frame reshot of it. And you go, well, I've already seen all this. Um, so I think it will be. And I think I'm basically I'm on both of them. I'm sort of listed as a consultant um, and I'm sort of going to be involved. But weirdly, on both things, I actually said I don't want to write the pilot script because um, which is really odd. I went from like like literally 15 years of having scripts out there trying to get stuff, you know, off and stuff. To the point where I've gone, do you know what? I'm not going to write. I might well write scripts on a series, but I'm not going to write the pilot scripts. It's better if I let somebody else take a fresh eyes at the at the work. Okay. And meanwhile, okay. I can do the thing I'm good at, which is writing the novels. And let's just keep on cracking on with that. And do you think that's quite unusual for an author to be so kind of, hey, go for it. I trust you. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, look, it helps, to be honest, it really does help if it's Chris Addison, where I kind of, I do just trust him. Um, I think, you know, The Stranger Times and stuff, because it's set in Manchester, I did have a lot of meetings about that, because um, that, oh, that that process, by the way, was really odd. Just like, in a way I can't explain, this This was like, um, I got called from my agent and said, the TV agent we work with, you have to come down and have a meeting about The Stranger Times, because there's been a lot of interest. And I was like, but... We've only just sent it to publishers. Like it hasn't been decided who's publishing it. It's like, yeah. So how is their TV? I don't understand. How is their TV interest? And he went, well, there is. And I went, but and I kept asking, but how is there? It was just, there is. Just come down and you can ask the TV agent. And I sat down in this meeting with him and the TV agent. And I went, how, how is their interest in this? I don't understand. And she just went, it's out there. I went, what does that fucking mean? <laughs> how is it out? there it's like it's it's like but yeah the, apparently the scouts that sort of read these things so i ended up getting up um loads of like american companies and stuff wanted to be like they're all sort of pitching and i had a really weird conversation with one of them and they went okay i'm gonna say a word to you now i want you to keep not mind and i was like okay great and the guy seemed nice enough chatting to him for 15 minutes by the way really awkward with meetings with americans they think the first 15 minutes they have to tell you how great your work is 
Sure, yeah. And I'm just sitting there cringing, going, oh, please let this be over. Oh, this is horrible. <laughs> I was brought up Irish Catholic. I'm not used to being told I'm good. And he went, okay, keep it up in mind. Okay. Puppets. I'm sorry, what now? <laughs> Puppets. <laughs> and this, by the way, is a, like it was a big, like, a, it's, it's the director's company who was producing one of the biggest films, like doing one of the biggest films that are coming out. I think probably early next year, but like big. I mean, like Marvel DC big, right? And okay. and they wanted to do it with puppets. And I was like, uh, no, okay. I was, I was like trying to be polite, going, uh, okay, yeah. I mean, it's, 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 I was doing a lot of heading on and going, it's, I mean, yeah, 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 it's, yeah, yeah, right. Okay, interesting, interesting, yeah. And in my head, I'm going, I can't wait for this call to be over so I can explain this to my wife because I'm pretty sure it's mad, but I want to double check. Uh, but it's like, That's uh, extraordinary. Obviously, when you said when you kind of teed that up, I'm thinking, what could the word possibly have been? But I didn't get as far as puppets. Outside of porn, of, there was nothing I could have you could have said that would have been more surprising about how you do did this. You, did you get a sense of whether they meant kind of Team America marionettes or Sesame Street felt kind of puppets? Any uh, ideas? Uh, honestly, they they sent me a taster tape and I never watched it. Because <laughs> I'm like, I've already written for puppets. Um, it's like, yeah, sure. I don't sure. really want to go through all this and come back to end up having puppets again. And just in my head, I was like, can I see this? I don't know. No. Do you know what he goes? The best win in the world. I can't see this working. It um, is interesting wondering what they're trying to, what aspect of the story they're trying to serve with puppets. Well, I think because well, this Did, was this was the bear in mind this is the Stranger Times, which is supernatural yes. and stuff. So I guess oh yeah, of, I see what you mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But even then, I was going nah. I mean, I've seen puppets and you can do some great stuff, but you can't do nuanced acting like you know when there is proper drama in there. I mean, people have emotions yeah. and everything. I mean, you know, I'm not messing around. With it. <laughs> so let's let's just rewind a little bit to that that moment we were talking about before of the start of the first book. Mm -hmm. So you were, let's look at how you wrote that and how your process has changed. Now. Oh yeah, cool, yeah. So did you, were you storyboarding? Were you doing index cards? No, I, not at that point. I think actually one of the biggest things with that was, um, bless him, because I, I did a master's in creative writing because I wanted to write a book. Uh, I had an idea for a thriller, which I've still never written, by the way. Uh, but I went to do a master's in creative writing and they had like a workshop. Uh, where every the whole idea was in the group that three people brought in, sent a bit of their thing to the everyone in the group, like a couple thousand words. Everyone read through it. And then you read a part of it and we all gave feedback. And that was great for me as a stand-up because it gave me the feedback you get from stand-up. Um, yeah, and then nice. other people, basically, when they were busy with their jobs, couldn't get it done. And they just kept asking me to do another one. So I just sent in another chunk. And we ended up doing mine a lot, bless them. Um, but it was great because it gave me the people saying, oh, this is really good. And it just gave me the confidence and then, even then, when I'd written chunks of it, um, Brendan Dempsey, God love him, and Claire Campbell, who was a very fine stand-up before she retired as well. Um, she's now a very good playwright. But the two of them, I kept sending it to them to read, and they kept giving me feedback, and me, my wife as well, obviously, and all that, because I didn't have that confidence. And I literally, actually, what I actually thought was, because I started writing short stories, because I thought, I still, by the way, if anyone wants to write a novel, the best piece of advice I can give you, write a couple of short stories first. It's ama I'm amazed you don't hear that more as a piece of advice because it's like it's like those insane people you meet every year who have come to Edinburgh, booked an hour and decided to start doing stand up. So sure. yeah, yeah. That's exactly what it is in my head. It's like, how would you try that? Whereas if you do a short story, you can try it out. 
you've got something you can show people. You can get a bit of positive feedback. It'll keep you going in the dark days. All of that. So, yeah. Then I started. So I did some short stories. Then I started doing this novel, which came out with short story by accident, basically. I had the idea. I realized there was a premise where nothing happened. And it was literally just a guy uh, who looks like a lot of people visiting old, old people in hospital and pretending to be whoever they think he is. Um, and then I, okay. I had the idea. And then I was sitting there going... I remember sitting where I didn't remember where I was sitting. I remember sitting there for ages going, that's actually after two days of figuring went, that's a pre- problem is it's a premise. There's nothing actually happening there. It's just a good premise. And then I had the idea that one of the old people tries to kill whoever they think he is. And that, and then literally from there I was scribbling down and like within 15 minutes I went, Oh God, this is a novel. This isn't a short story. And I started writing it. I just called it a practice novel in my head. I just thought, I'll write yeah. this and then I'll learn. That's an interesting piece of framing. It's just a practice novel. Yeah. Nothing's at stake. Yeah. That must have been very useful for kind of like freeing you up, right? It is because people have this weird, like, you know, we're always sort of, we're trying to create with an audience in our head of, oh God, people are going to read this. And if people read, people talk themselves out in novels going, oh, this isn't as good as that novel I just read by X, Y, and Z. And you go, well, no, it's a first draft. Their first draft wasn't anywhere near as good as what you've just read. It's like if you go in and watch Daniel Kitson, you probably should come out thinking you should give up stand-up, which is what almost every stand-up thinks when they go and see Daniel Kitson. And the ones who don't think that aren't very good. But <laughs> but genuinely, you do have that sort of thing and you have to realise that there is a process. So I think if you cheat yourself and go, well, look, I'm, I'm me and my wife are the only two people going to read this anyway. Or, you know, I'm going to send it to Claire and Brendan. But, you know, it's just a practice thing. Um. And one of the main things I find so e- so much better with with writing the novels and stuff now is because I think I'm just doing it for me. I have this weird little me- mental trick in my head and I don't even know where this came from. And it's a really odd thing. But, you know, we all have that self-doubt and stuff and like, oh, is this good enough? Or is this good? You know, I have this image of, you know, when Keanu Reeves wakes up in The Matrix and he's in the, he must have, everyone's seen The Matrix. And he's in all the goop and they take out the thing from the back of his head and it's the big metal thing. I just sort of sit down and then when I'm sitting down and if I'm anyway worried or something, I just imagine in my head going click and throwing the the lead off the back of my head and going, well, that's other people's opinion. Let's just have a bit of, I'll just have a bit of fun at myself for the minute. Um, I love it. And that genuinely just, just helps me get through. And it's so, and I think then I just, yeah, it's, um, I think a lot of it is just tricking yourself into certain things. And I got better when I was doing new material near the end. Uh, and one of my, well, I would say regrets now, I don't like thinking in those terms, but if I'd known now what I should have known then, you know, if I'd known then what I know now in stand-up, I think I would have been a lot better. I don't say it would have been a world beater. I don't, you know, I honestly don't know. I just always feel like I never, I probably never fulfilled my potential um, in my own head. Now, look, loads of people believe that. There's loads of people out there who think they should be playing for England, um, you know, and almost all of them are wrong. Uh, I just be clear. I don't think I should have played for England for many reasons, uh, <laughs> but yeah, um, but yeah, but I do think. Um, but weirdly, if you can turn that off at a certain point, if you can learn from your mistakes, I think you will get in any creative thing. As long as you learn from the mistakes and you learn to give yourself a break, you get better. Um, because everyone's first, like even if you write something, you go. I, when I write something, I, I've come. I come home and go. Ah, oh, it wasn't very good today. But I, I just wrote to two thousand. Like I wrote the words. I just got the words yeah. out. And then some days you're writing and going, "This is genius! I'm amazing!" And you know, and most of the time it's the first and not the second. But what's really interesting is, is when you go back and read them, they are invariably almost about the same standard. 
like some of the bad stuff you or some of the bad stuff you go, oh, I see what's happened here. I'm just I've got a bit clunky here and I can just take it out. But it's amazing. The variance is nowhere near what you emotionally feel it is. That is fascinating because I think that's that's a real parallel that with stand up when if you record all of your gigs and listen back to all of your gigs, which is the second part that not everybody does, um, then you absolutely have the same thing. The bad ones aren't as bad as you thought and the good ones aren't as good as you thought. Yeah. You can, you can, you're, a, you're a different person when you're in editing mode, when you're in listening back mode. Yeah. But isn't that interesting? The variance is much smaller. It's like that I weird conversation think... you must have had after gigs where you think you've had a shocker and somebody comes up and is genuinely telling you they enjoyed you and you basically just, part of you will just refuses to accept it. Like nobody, nobody in this room enjoyed that. No, no, I'm not, I'm not believing it. No. But they are being genuine. And it's one of the most awkward conversations I've ever had is of people trying to tell me which they enjoyed something after I thought it went disastrously badly. But there is something to learn from that. So when you start off writing, when you're writing your practice novel, that first one that mm-hmm. became a man with one of those faces, that you you have a sense of the the situation, mm-hmm. which then becomes a, which you recognise as a premise, and you go, well, then a thing could happen. That's some plot. At what point does character start to evolve and how? Generally, I have a rough idea with certain, like when it's, when it's a brand new thing, it does take you time to find the characters. I basically, because I wrote so many scripts, again, when I say it, everything sort of had a value, even all those scripts that went nowhere, um, I wrote a lot of scripts. By the way, The Stranger Times is based on a script that I wrote 15 years ago that went nowhere. Um, and then literally I'm having the director of a DC films company ringing me up and asked me to make it with puppets. Uh, like that's just, you know, based on the thing they've seen. But yeah, my point is I've written a lot of scripts and stuff. So dialogue is a big part of how I write. And um, what I honestly do is I put people, it's sort of in a room and I let them start talking in my head. Like I literally start writing it and I discover who they are as I go. Weirdly, the very first page of a man at one of those faces, I didn't know what I was writing was based in Ireland. Until the guy starts, a guy visiting somebody in, in, in hospital and he starts having the most Irish conversation imaginable, which is literally I have it every week where I ring my mother every day. And at least twice a week, she tells me that somebody I don't know who is now dead. It is like just it's such a stereotypical thing, but it's absolutely true. And I started having this these two people just having the conversation. And that's what came out. And I was like, oh, this is based in Ireland. And he's sort of the same age and he's been told about somebody he doesn't know and how they're dead and all that sort of stuff. And then I think character just comes out of your, you let them run around. You let them sort of, you know, which you kind of do with stand up as well. If you like, I've seen really good comics when they're working through Edinburgh material and stuff. You can see them having the confidence and the time to let it breathe. And it might end up being something very different to what initially thought it was. But they have the skills that they can make that still be good for an audience, even at a work through most of the time, you know. And I think a lot of time with characters, you sort of, you let them have a walk around, then you hit on certain things about them and they kind of find them in your head. Like I wrote the the main guy in The Stranger Times, Bancroft, there was one sentence I got that really defined him. And I was talking about he was in a state and he looked like, I think the line was, he looked like a man who was auditioning to be his own corpse. Uh, something like that. But I kind of feel this idea, oh, right, so he's a, yeah, and I got, got this image in my head about he was just this guy who'd completely gone off the rails and was just, you know, waiting to die and life wouldn't pay ball. Um, but I think the big thing is you give them time and space and you let them play around with things. And you can t- 
take pieces of people that you know um, and sort of, you know, you're not writing that person. But like, for example, Bunny McGarry is the main character in the, the, the Dublin trilogy and all those things. Um, he is, everyone thinks he's based on Brendan Gleeson, which is weird because he really, really wasn't. Um, to the point where there's a guy I know um, who is a guy from Cork uh, who was near me at Sporting Fixtures a lot. I used back, I used to work for London Irish. People, I think I've said this before. He's a guy who used to be, well, I used to be the announcer in the stadium. And this guy was the, the, the team manager at the time. And he's a lovely fella. But when the games are on, he just becomes incandescent with rage when stuff goes against him. He's like, <laughs> and he's sitting on the bench with a guy from Samoa and two Australians. And they're all sitting there like there's a fax machine having a breakdown. They don't understand anything that's happening. Uh, and I had him in my head for Bunny. And um, I sort of used the accent. But then other bits came in. And actually, what happened with the first book is the character was originally short and fat. Uh, short and a little bit poorly, not unlike the gentleman in question. And I panicked and went, oh, people will realise I've based this on. And I made him into a much bigger guy like a month beforehand. <laughs> I rewrote the book and just took out some bits. And so everyone sort of goes now, and says, oh, it's Brendan Gleeson. And you kind of go, well, it does sound like him now, but that was because I was trying to not get punched in a pub. Um, but yeah, so I think you can use little bits of people you know. And then if you if you're if you let the characters talk, they tell you who they are. Wanky as that sounds, they they do. They tell you who they are. So does that mean that they, in your editing process, when you're writing some dialogue for Bunny and you go back and edit it, do you ever think that's not right? Bunny wouldn't say that, or is it that everything Bunny has said in your process is a hundred percent Bunny and leads you the way to go? Weirdly, there is one incident of Bunny saying something that I really don't think works, and oddly, it is the very first appearance because I didn't know who he was yet. Um, and I read, I actually read back in it again when I was going back to one of the later books. I went, oh, because there's a little bit in it where he's, he is quite full on and he says like stuff, you know, he says stuff you wouldn't normally say to people. He's like a really, he's, he's no filter. He does say stuff to people that you wouldn't ever say politely. But in the very first scene, he is actually rude, uh, to Bridget, the, the main female lead. And every time I hear that, see the line, I go, Ugh, that isn't him. He's actually polite. He's just, like he, he might be full on, but he's actually a gentleman at the same time and he wouldn't be yeah. needlessly rude to someone he doesn't know. And weirdly, that's the one time. And I actually kind of thought about going back and, and fixing it and I never have because uh, I just think, well, it's there and it is it is what it is. But um, it's interesting though. Yeah, things like that stand out. There's very few other things I think after that I can think of with any of the characters that you genuinely go, ooh, and it's interesting, the editing process, I've had, when it comes to comedy, I've had um, editors go, oh, that's a bit, that's a bit much. Um, and when it comes to the comedy, I have the confidence to go, I'll read it again, I will take it on board and go, but I'll read it again. And most of the time I'll go, do you know what, I'm, I'm happy with that. Because I think with any joke, you know, and we have, God knows, there's enough people these days going, you can't say nothing no more. And you go, yeah, right, yeah, here we go. And all that sort of stuff. And I always think the reality is you can say whatever you want. You just need to be able to justify it to somebody if somebody goes, are you sure that was something you should have said? Like in the recent book, there's a scene in it where um, the Bunny has, there's a 12-year-old kid that is like Bunny's sidekick. He's the assistant manager of the hurling team he manages, right? Just to give you the quick setup. And they're in hospital. Bunny needs to go in to see somebody who's been shot. And he has to get by a guard on the door, like a policeman, Irish policeman. And the little kid comes up and he basically distracts him by telling him he's a cancer kid. He said, oh, yeah, no. And he, and he does this whole riff about, uh, yeah, oh, no, I'm, I'm you know, terminal, I've got six months to live, goes through all this thing. And it is, it is quite, you know, 
And he like literally at one point he goes, oh, tell it to me, cancerous bollocks. Like, and he does this full thing. And then he has, one of the riffs he goes into was, oh, I used to be, you know, used to be wall to wall celebrities coming to visit me. And there was a new kid on the ward and he's got younger than me and he's got dimples. Uh, so now like he's getting to meet you. He's get but you two and the, you two are doing a set by his bed. And I've got a bunch of fucking children's TV presenters coming to meet me. And like, and then one of the editors went, oh, that's, wasn't that a bit close? And I kind of read through it and went, no, I'm I'm fine because I can justify that because it makes sense for the character. And he's just pointing out the weird thing about we pay more attention to kids in certain instances than we don't know. Like I like just more like, like no read through it and go even with a joke. It's the same with a joke. I think morally, if you go go yeah, I'm fine with that. Then you can yeah. say whatever you want, and as long as somebody, you know. And I've I've get that review a lot. I've had people say I'm not politically correct. Oh, it's not politically correct, and I'm like, no. I, well, barring else, in my definition of politically correct, it is. Because I'm not punching down on anybody. Um, even in my stand-up, like I did a, I had a couple of things that were based around experiences, as I said, myself and the wife had. Um, and people go, ooh, talking about racism. And it's like, ooh, or the racist material. Went, no, it's not racist. I'm talking about yeah. racism. And the yeah. butt of the joke is racism or me being an idiot. Um, like one of those stories that was at the end of my, the show, one of the ones that comics now sort of know me for, Mick Ferry does a very good impersonation of me doing it, by the way is yeah. uh, the zoo story. And it was all based on a true event where I brought my two black nieces to the zoo. And what it was based on is at one point, there was albino gibbons and they saw them and they were like little kids and they were laughing. They're pointing at me going, oh, is it albino gibbon? And I started making the noises and chasing them around. And I saw this woman look horrified and I realized because from her perspective, I was chasing two black children making monkey noises at them. Sure. Now, that ended up being the basis of a whole five minute thing where there was a chase thing and there was all these things, you know, as you, as you do, it sort of heightened the, the thing. But I had people sort of go, oh, my God, it's about racism. And you go, yeah, but the whole point is it's my mortification for somebody thinking I was a racist. There's nothing yeah, sure. racist about it. And I, I mean, you do see that. Interestingly, I remember doing The Stand, Newcastle, and doing that, one, maybe that story or another one that also involved race. And the fascinating thing was... um there was a black guy in the front row, the only black guy in the room. Uh, he's in the front row. Lovely fella. I think he'd been chatting to the MC. I started doing that. And because it's a stand, they're a really nice audience. You could see them all looking at the black guy. And I remember talking to him afterwards and buying him a point because I went, thank God you were laughing. Because if you weren't laughing, nobody in that room was laughing because they would have thought, oh, this isn't right. Um, but he laughed, so it was great. And the whole thing was, my point is, I'm happy if you can't do the material in front of anybody, if you can't say the line in front of anybody, then you obviously shouldn't do it, as we all know. Um, and I think in this, in the same in books, the good thing with books is you control what's in it. Because, you know, in stand up, uh, you have the problem where if someone mishears it, you can't go back and then explain unless you've got a videotape. You can't say, no, I didn't say that. And that wasn't what I was saying. Um, it's whereas in a book, you can go, well, here's the whole thing entirely in context. This is my evidence. And if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. Um, but thankfully nobody's seriously had an issue. I had somebody call me anti-American at some point, um, mm -hmm. which was bizarre. I think she just, I make jokes about everybody and then an American character turned up and for the first time and she didn't like it. It's like, you do realize everybody else in the books has basically had the piss taken out of them at various other points. It's just, you thought your thing was special and it isn't. When you, when you said earlier on about Bunny being the lead character in the Dublin trilogy, when did that, as as I'm reading at the moment, a yeah. man with one of those faces, and Bunny seems like a kind of, uh, I mean, not not the lead. No, he's, say, it's kind of, yeah. 
Well, it sort of started off basically when I say with the characters. I've said before, but it's absolutely true. Paul was the main character, and I thought it would just be him. And then the nurse he meets very early on, because they were having a chat, she became interesting and she sort of became on board. Then Bunny was supposed to be a minor, quite antagonistic character. Then he basically, I mean, genuinely, I said, literally turned up and refused to leave. And he's such great fun to write that he ended up like in the first book. There's like three of the books where it's kind of an ensemble. So he's part of it. And the reason I say he's the main character is he's the one most people pull out and it's the one they associate. And you kind of quickly yeah. realize at a certain point that he becomes the focus for people. Um, so, but that, that was never supposed to happen. Um, but it was just because he was so much fun to do. Is there, is there a parallel, do you think? And I've, I've not heard interviews specifically about this, but I think of someone like uh, Samuel Vimes in the Terry Pratchett books. He isn't the star of the first story he appears in but he's the best thing about it yep. and then becomes the star of the, the, the following books because Pratchett's obviously gone, I've got something there. I've yep. really got something. And everybody refers to them as Vimes books and increasingly they became Vimes books. Yeah, I mean, they exactly that because I'm a massive Pratchett fan and I, like, I think that's the same thing where, and it's not even like oh, people respond to it. It's, it's when you're writing it, you know. Um, I think genuinely... When you- is, is, that, is that right? That it, that it was... Did you know that was the person people were going to respond to? Um, I think by the end of the first book, I think it was fairly obvious that you sort of went, as long as, I mean, I was slightly, because he's so Irish and stuff, I was wondering what to translate. I knew in my head he was this thing that was, you know, this force of nature that that was a lot of fun to write and really what did feel like in his own way, you know, because you're looking for the thing that makes your stuff you. Because there's loads of, it's even bad advice that you regularly see given out about going, oh, you should look at the other stuff in your genre and try and copy. He's like, oh, ah, ah, no, don't be, be yourself. And I just sort of went, well, he has come from somewhere that is genuinely me. And it feels like when I'm writing him, it's really rolling out of me. Um, and because, yeah, so I sort of knew fairly early on. Having said that in the second book, genuinely, the idea was he disappears and I wrote a book. This is how you can screw up your own career. I wrote a book where people liked the first one and everyone liked Bunny. I seriously came fairly close to writing the second book where he doesn't appear until the very end, which would have been a disastrously bad idea. Whereas as it is now, there's 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 a, a second timeline where we meet him throughout year like okay. fifteen years, sixteen years beforehand. Who caught that? Did you catch that? I, I someone else. I caught it go, because whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> I caught it because I was like, it wasn't. I went. This is. I remember talking to the wife, going, "This isn't working because he's not. Yeah, it's not right." And then weirdly, I had the other idea. I was going to write it as a short story, and I ended up weird, having the eureka moment of going, "Oh, just put them together." Um, and that's the thing. Like literally writing books, my brain. I've, I've, I genuinely feel quite guilty about this, but I actually have this thing where I just think about a problem, and if it's working, what invariably happens is I get into the shower um, first thing in the morning. And my brain wakes up and there's like my subconscious is going, oh, we've had a thing while you were asleep. Uh, how you fix this is you go and do this. And I was all oh, right. Yeah. And like, lit- I mean, literally, I've had a discussion with my wife about can I put something up in the in the, the shower that we could get some sort of waterproof thing? Because in case I forget <laughs> something. Um, yeah. Even my editor is a running joke now. So it just tells me to get in the shower. He puts it in notes. Just get in the shower about this and come back with something yeah, different. Right. OK. Get the back brain working. Just to come back to Bunny. Is there is there a link between the fact that Bunny is a kind of antagonistic presence 
and you finding i mean the nearest thing for me is or for comics maybe might be those moments when you are finding your persona and going oh this this works they're really laughing now why because i'm activating or unlocking i'm releasing something in me yeah is there a similar feeling with that whereby not just for bunny but maybe for other characters as well where the way you said it there almost feels like when you have unplugged that kind of matrix cable of other people's opinions and you let your inner self speak that bunny is saying things that you would want to say but couldn't get a, get away with or behaving in ways that a part of your id would want to behave yeah i think there is that thing where i know in stand up where you feel like something was it like bothers you and you find this scene where there's something that you don't like or something that sort of winds you up and you go we start talking about it and he sort of go, oh, and it, it just started, starts flowing out of you. And you see, especially in the stand-up, you'll see an audience respond where they go, oh, yeah, why is this a thing? And when you kind of hit that riff, I think that is because like, like a lot of the dialogue and stuff can come from him just kicking off about um, stuff. Like I literally had, a, you know, just stupid things. I had, um, with apologies to Danny McLaughlin, speaking of which, but I had a thing about two, two, two uh, characters having an argument about biscuits. And because they have a thing once a month in the Stranger Times where people come in um, and it's the loon day where they come in and tell them their mad ideas because oh shoot the, the Stranger Times is basically just apparent it's like the 14 times uh, they sort of report all this weird news and then once a month people can come in and they're having a discussion about what biscuits because they don't want to encourage people to come in too much but they don't want to offend them so they're trying to find the perfect biscuit that says you've had a biscuit now leave and it's <laughs> but it's just hitting on a silly riff like that and even the crime stuff there's all these cliches in crime writing that you sort of things about how you find a body and all these like one I really hate in films is people popping up from the back of um, cars. You know that way in the yeah. back seat where someone gets in a car and someone pops up from the back. And I've even I've done it like I've tested it with Gary on tours and stuff. It's just, just how far are you away before you can see me in the back? And he's like, well, you're a quite big lad. Just tell me. He's like, okay, from a good five feet. I say exactly my point. There's no way anybody can get out of it. And it was just, and then I wrote a short story about it. And the whole, the, the whole thing was just me, basically him riffing. It's bunny riffing with these, because basically he did a joke where two guys get into a car and he pops up and he went, this shouldn't be possible. And, <laughs> and it's then him just kicking off and him literally listing the films I got annoyed by. And it's one of these things where you know it's working because if it's working for you, yeah. especially when you've written a few things, you can kind of go, like, I kind of feel like my audience likes what I, you know, when I feel like this, it's always the stuff you get the feedback that the audience enjoyed. So you kind of, you know, you can run with it then. I think that's really key, isn't it? I, I had the uh, the happy and uh, ludicrous and self-indulgent experience recently of having one of my own bits from a, an album from five or six years ago pop up on Spotify Random Shuffle wow. as I was driving. And <laughs> like on my Random Shuffle, it's not like it's out there, you know what I mean? Yeah, but still. but um, it popped up. I couldn't really remember the punchlines because I'm blessed with very poor memory. And it really made me laugh. <laughs> I was driving along, listening to myself, going, you know, like knowing it was me, but really feeling like this guy's good. That was a, that was a really good yeah. bit. Very, very satisfying. So I am interested in those moments, like when you and I did it again recently. I think I was kind of coming back to writing for the first time since the pandemic. You know, I've been working on other projects for the last year or so, mm -hmm. and scribbling something. I think I tweeted along the lines of like, well. Don't worry, everybody. This guy just laughed out loud at his own idea. <laughs> you know, those moments in the cafe, shared office, wherever, where you're scribbling away or dictating in your case, and you make yourself laugh and you go, I'm onto something. If yeah. that's tickled me, then really now, from my perspective as a comic, it's a case of making sure that I can clearly and accurately portray 
all of the bits such that they have all the background information that I have. So it'll be funny enough to them. Yeah. So that's a similar sort of moment. There, there is that moment. The difference with novels, which is quite interesting, is because uh, I like um, my fifth book was called Disaster Inc. Right. And it's set in America where Buddy goes to America. Spoiler alert. Um, but um, basically because I was in America and I love American diners and you know all that weird stuff they have with the, the names for things. Like, give me two U-boats and all this sort of thing. Um, and I've always loved that thing. And then um, the Americans don't do tea properly. And I had this in my head. I literally wrote the scene two years before I wrote the book where I had this idea. But the thing we have to do with the novels where I think people go wrong, where comedians try and write novels, if you've got a funny idea for a thing, great. It has to fit the story. Because if you have two people walking into a room and the only reason they're walking into the room is because you've got a zebra in the corner and you want them to talk about the zebra for five minutes, then that isn't part of your novel because that doesn't serve the story. So you have to find a way. And that actually, like, literally, that was... I had all that stuff with the diner. And then the idea was, at the end of the chapter, two guys come in and try and rob the diner. And that got mm. things going. So that worked because I had the funny bit that I was looking going, oh, this would be a laugh. But it was also... The story has to fit it because the thing people go, I think when people go badly with comedy writing novels is they don't appreciate um, you have to care about the characters and there has to be stakes. Something you know, as crazy it can be, even in Terry Pratchett was brilliant at this. You care about the characters. He made, Terry Pratchett made amazingly human, warm characters mm. and you care about the characters and that makes you care about the story. So all the humor is part of it. But it is not the reason anything happens, because the reason anything happens in a Terry Pratchett book is it's the thing that needs to happen. Yeah. Yeah. So what is for you the difference between or how do you how do you know the difference between like a rip roaringly funny bit and just a really neat turn of phrase? Like, do you or do you see it? I suppose. Do you think in terms of those bits like something one of the, the first bits that really made me laugh out loud? Um, in because I was listening to the audio book of a man with one of those faces, and I forget. I'm sorry, the name of the uh, the incredible voice performer. Oh, Morgan C. Jones, he's brilliant. Former stand-up, by the way. Is he really? Yeah, yeah. He was part of a double act. Um, and everything, yeah. But uh, there was a line about, and I think it was, it might have been about Jimmy Stewart when you were kind of sketching out the character when we first meet Jimmy Stewart, <laughs> and talking about takeaways, which he wasn't allowed. It's about his relationship with his wife. Oh yes, that is, I think the line is um, his relationship is built on the, a good marriage is built on lying, the right kind of lying. Like she goes off on a holiday, uh, and he he goes and that's she, it, that's it. the dog eats the micro the meals she's left frozen in the fridge, and he has the takeaways he's not allowed to have. And uh, yeah. yeah, but it was all about the right kind of lying. I think was the idea. But, yes, but that's yeah. that sort of comes out of nowhere. That's just to get from A to B. That's just how your mind works as a comedian. I yeah. think because um, that's what weirdly I don't really most of the time. I'm not trying to be funny, stupid as that might sound. I'm just trying to tell the story. But like, if you try and write a novel, if I try and not write a novel. We've been institutionalized into stand-up comedy, so it's how we deal with stuff in life. If you've been, if you've been a supermarket with a comedian, the amount of times they say something they shouldn't just go into the cash register because there's a gag here. Um, I mean, Gary Delaney, I love him to bits, but I can remember being a supermarket with him and him saying something like just not rude, but just genuinely trying to do a gag to somebody. You're like, "Oi, that was <laughs> that was a bit too much for the woman sitting behind the counter." <laughs> But because that's how our brains work. And that's so ended up being how just I don't try and be funny. It's just it just comes out that way. I think, you know, more or less. 
that's all we've got time for. Queef, what a joy. It's been a pleasure speaking to you. And the only very last thing I have to ask you is, are you happy? Do you know what? I'm the happiest I've ever been. And I've got really good at, uh, the thing I've learned in the last couple of years is, and it's not so much that, you know, but it's just, I've actually, I've got good at recognising it. And I think that's the thing. Look, I mean, generally I'm like, people sort of keep asking me about, I'm upset about giving up stand-up. Um, no, because I, I get to play every day in my head and do these things and I enjoy that. And uh, perfect timing. One of my dogs is currently at the door trying to get into my office. Uh, I get people say, do you miss stand-up? I go, I can have dogs now. Um, so I do miss stand-up. But no, I'm genuinely, I'm very happy um, because I feel like I'm using my skills to the best. I'm definitely better at this than I have been at anything else I've done previously. And I enjoy this more because of it, because I feel like I'm using the best version of myself. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. It's been a, it's been a, a dream come true. So that was Queeve. Loads more stuff available. We'll find out Queeve's secrets of self-publication and we'll learn how he cultivates his fan base and some bits and bobs besides 25 minutes of extra content if you fancy taking yourself to comedianscomedian.com slash insiders. Thank you to Queef for coming on the show. You can find out, where, where will you go? I think you go to whiteheadirishman.com. In fact, I'm certain you do because uh, it's one of those cleverly memorable names. Whiteheadirishman.com to find out more about C.K. McDonald. And you can buy his stuff and it's good stuff. If you have got, um, as I do, an audible audiobook account which chucks credits at you which you ignore and then occasionally you buy a, a highfalutin book about self-improvement or mental health or business and then, you know, don't really listen to it. Um, or the Philippa Perry. I've got I've got a good halfway through the Philippa Perry one, but what I do is I've put her on uh, 1.7 times speed. So, <laughs> so it uh, absolutely flies along on long drives. My point is, if you've got some spare uh, Audible credits, then jump on this. Just give the first one of the Dublin trilogy a go. It is so much fun. Or Stranger Things, which is his latest. Um, and uh, let's look forward to this, uh, this Dublin trilogy TV adaptation that's coming out soon. Thanks again to Queeve. Nathan Wood was your producer of the show. Jake Crossland did the logging. Music was by Rob Smout and the podcast consultant remains uh, Peter Dobbing against his will. And I'll post Amble at you in a second. But um, uh, thank you very much for listening. That's me. I'm going to have it. Well, I'm going to record the... Um, I'm going to... I moved my finger over my face there and I did. I'm going to record. It was quite fun. I'm going to record the micropod now to further splurge the Edinburgh shows to people who, uh, who might uh, spot that. But that's that. Have a wonderful summer. And um, thank you. It's I almost called this, because I'm going to take a break, I almost thought, well, that's the end of Series 1. 380 episodes. That's the end of Series 1. We'll have a month off and we'll begin Series 2. But of course, that's nonsense. Uh, it's all one infinite fucking series. Post-amble coming at you shortly. But other than that, ta-ta for now. Oh gosh! I've, I've honestly, I don't. I have, I have burnt my back in a comical, uh, comic book fashion. Where I think what I did was fail to properly do. I kind of did the tops of my shoulders, and then I, I sun creamed my kids, and then I think I basically had sun cream left on my hands, and so I smeared it on my lower back. So I've got two handprints of white on my lower back, and the whole midsection. It's, if anything, it's a good teaching tool to show the children that they shouldn't be dickheads like daddy. Um, what was I going to say to you? This, I've, uh, I've gone all, I've gone all breathy, haven't I? Because I, I didn't take enough breath. I've just, I've obviously, 
from your perspective, there's been a whole interview, but me, I've just rattled through all the blurbs in one go. Oh, a nice breath. Thank you, everybody, that came to the, the preview I did. Me and Catherine Bohart, she's got a cracker of a show, and she's all, she's all, oh, I've not done my revision. Oh, I've not. That's not what her voice sounds like at all. <laughs> she's all like, oh, I, oh, I do, oh, I've got, I suppose I've got some bits. And I'm like, I mean, come on, come on. That's 90% of the way there. Um, where's she going to be? She's the monkey barrel as well, I think. Um, but thank you if you came to that one. We did a lovely show for uh, for the uh, well, it wasn't Leicester Comedy Festival, was it? But it's lovely Colin that does um, that does all the shows. At, what what is he? Triple C P. Triple C P. I think if you do triple C as in C E E P P E E triple C P dot com, I think I'm pretty sure you'll find him. Um, and he's got loads of stuff. I was going to spruik it, but I will mention it on the um, uh, on the micropod that I was talking about. So. Uh, thank you to Colin and everyone who came along. Lots of the sofa were there from the uh, erstwhile Infinite Sofa. And um, uh, it was really fun. And what an experience to have, like, I've got to stop thinking of it as a problem and start reveling in it because all I've got to do for the special that I'm going to tape in November is take the best bits out of two really fun hours that I love doing, literally take my favourite bits out of them, weld them together, and then try and distill some sort of a through line and seeing as they're all about my family and or my obsessive fear of death then they'll it'll probably all work out quite well in fact it'll almost be a shame if they fit together and slot together very neatly because it will show that i have a very limited range of subjects <laughs> very, very thematically limited but i can't wait i cannot wait to be going up there. it's going to be glorious what else will i tell you Oh, oh, that's it. If you're not on the mailing list, hey, listen, go to comedianscomedian.com. There is now a link there to join the mailing list, like not the Insiders Club. I, I'm always banging on about the Insiders Club. I'm always banging on about the Insiders Club. But now, if you're a casual, you're very welcome. Join the mailing list and you will get access to the video of the James Acaster Insiders Zoom Q&A that we did. And so even though that's an Insiders Club thing, it's also it's a little teaser for you. Um, so a little reward for joining the mailing list. I don't know what happens if you're already a member of the mailing list and you uh, join it. So what I'll do is the next time I do a mail shot, I'll include the link to the Acaster thing so everyone's got it so that we don't crash the system by having everyone that wants it who's already on the list re-signing up. But you can go to stuartgoldsmith.co.uk and it's at the bottom of that page. You can sign up there uh, and or you can go to comedians. I mean, all of you go to comedianscomedian.com. The traffic's insane. Um, so if you see that little button there that says join the mailing list, please make use of it and you get the Acaster video. Even the insiders haven't got the video. I've got to send it to them now. So uh, feel free to do that. I think I've set that up sufficiently. I'm really enjoying doing these bi-weekly um, mailing list things. If you've been receiving them and enjoying them and sending me lots of positive feedback, as many of you have, then thank you once again. I do reply to everybody. It ruins my life. And uh, and that's that. I'm going to go off and have summer now. I'll do the micropod tomorrow. Sod it. Uh, we've had a lovely day at the beach. We've run around like twats and I saw the biggest jellyfish I think I've ever seen in my life. It was so big. I thought it was a smaller jellyfish. Like my mind could only process it as a smallish jellyfish that had somehow died on top of a big round rock and spread out over it. And then we ascertained that, no, it was a hoofing great big jellyfish. Jesus. Um, and then I didn't want to go back in the sea after that. It's chilling. Um, anything else? Oh, in the ma- in the mailing list, I've told you all to watch Wayne. Watch Wayne on Amazon Prime. And I banged on about Wayne on Twitter. And then the showrunner of Wayne said, thanks, bud. And I was like, oh, that's cool. I like I like meeting my heroes. 
But uh, sometimes it's a bit like, no, I don't want this show to be made by a human that says hello to me on Twitter. I want it to be created by elves. I'm in the wrong business. I'm in the wrong podcasting game for someone who likes to keep the art separate from the artist. Yes, that's probably uh, not well thought out. It's been roastingly hot here in the UK, and I need to pack for a camping trip that is going to take place over two days of pure thunderstorm. So I'm going to go do that now. Thank you for listening. Thanks for... um, enjoying these most recent episodes god they've been good if you've just discovered this because you're into queeve and you're wondering why is this man banging on um then because uh, you if you're into ck mcdonald and you like those books and you're new to the pod then there have been some solid gold episodes this year greg jenner catherine bohart finn taylor uh who else there's been some blinders who else stevie martin it was a killer and everyone i mean they've all been good haven't they you can't start individually picking favorites but um go and listen to them if you haven't already very proud, very proud of the recent output. Jonathan Coulton coming up, and then I need to get my booking hat on. Um, but fortunately, I'm going to go to Edinburgh and see a ton of shows. Speak to you soon. Goodbye forever. No, I can. I say goodbye forever as a joke sometimes, and I think you can't, you can't go, you can't out on that in case you die. So goodbye for now. But thus shall I never die.